Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, all I need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. That would be a succinct summary of today's sermon text, which I invite you to find in John chapter 15. Be picking up about the middle of the chapter in just a moment, but I want to warn you what you're about to see. And I hope that you see it, not just read it. The passage is a sandwich. It's a gigantic, delicious meal. It's got on both sides of it the exact same uh, content. The bread, if you will, is in verses 12 and 17. That's the command. And in the middle is the model of our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. Today we'll see what it looks like to do verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11, last week, we touched on the very familiar passage to many of us, the abide in the vine. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, and He calls us lovingly to abide in Him, and so to bear fruit. Well, this week shows us what that looks like. What would it look like horizontally to abide in Christ? And it's been said several times, and it's been sung a few times. It's been prayed several more times already in the service that to abide in Christ necessarily shows up in others-oriented love. So the title of today's sermon is Love One Another, and as we abide in God's love for us in Christ, that's the previous passage, verses 9 to 11, abide in my love. We will bear the marks of that in today's passage, verses 12 to 17, that is loving one another. So before we read it, I want to say to you my main sentence. I hope to say it multiple times. If we can dare to believe that we are in fact truly, freely, and fully loved by the Lord Jesus, we will love him back and be free to love others with his love. Many of us have been not loved well, I was going to say unloved, from people that we thought loved us. And our categories for love have been so distorted that we've thrown up this gigantic, invisible, two-mile-thick concrete wall between our heart and everybody else, and we won't let them get close to us for fear that they're going to hurt us also. But here's the sentence again. If we can dare to believe that we are truly, freely, and fully loved by the Lord Jesus, we will love Him back, and we will be free to love others with His love. Or as I've summarized in I think almost every wedding ceremony I've had the privilege to officiate, I said this sentence, and I'll tell you just a quick story before the sentence. About five minutes ago, one of our church members, sweet Laura Donovan, nestled up beside me <laughs> and shared something with me in my ear right before Matt prayed. And she, she shared with me that her heart was about to burst as she was thinking about the love, the deep, deep love of Jesus. I'm gonna tell you the sentence I said at her renewal of the vow wedding ceremony that I officiated in front of this congregation a few years ago after she and her husband had walked through a long, uh, difficult season of, of separation and hardship and uh, the Lord restored them and I got to officiate. I'm gonna tell you the sentence I said there. But she said 14 years ago, almost 14 years ago, the Lord took their daughter Amber home to heaven through a car accident just north of the city here. Uh, she said, I forget the date, I think she said uh, seven years ago, uh, something like that. Two years, she said two years later, the Lord restored her marriage and not long after that, the Lord saved her husband. Mitch and her heart was just bursting. She said, I had to come tell you that I'm overwhelmed by the deep, deep love of Jesus before you get up to preach. She said, I'm so glad you did. 
This is the sentence I said at their renewal of the vow ceremony after they were separated for, I forget how long, long time, years, like seven, eight years. I've said at every other wedding ceremony I've had the privilege to officiate. To love each other best, you cannot love each other first. That's what today's passage is about. When you're overwhelmed by the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, verse 9, 10, and 11, abide in my love, abide in my love. I love you as the Father has loved me. Dwell in my love as you are drenched in the love of God for you in Christ and you respond back to him in love. Verses 12 to 17 tell us it's also going to show up this way. You will love one another. Look at the passage with me. John 15, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the God who made you. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. Let's pray together once more. Ask God for his help. Just be silent for about 10 seconds and I want you to boldly by faith ask God to speak to you. You do that privately in your heart and then I'll voice a prayer on our behalf. Father, I ask that you would give us the grace to receive the love of Jesus and to obey his command to love others as he has loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible open, it may just break it down into a few paragraphs in chapter 15, like I'm about to say, just going to say so that if your Bible doesn't separate it like that or you haven't seen the parts of it, you can kind of see the lay of the land. Verses 1 to 8 is about Christ, the vine. Verses 9 to 11 is about abiding in the love of Christ, the vine. We dealt with that portion last week. Today's is about loving fellow disciples of Christ, loving those whom God loves. And then the remaining part of the chapter, which Lord willing, Jim will preach to us next Sunday, it'll carry actually into chapter 16 as well. It's about enduring the scorn of the world. So you could say it this way, 1 to 11 is about our relationship to Jesus, 12 to 17 is about our relationship to each other as Jesus' people. And verses 18 all the way to 16, verse 4, is about our relationship to the world. Relationship to Christ, relationship to each other, relationship to the lost world. That's how chapter 15 into 16 works. To summarize verse 12 to 17, I believe the New American Commentary put it better than I could have rephrased it. So I'll just read it to you. They say the passage I read is about this. To summarize, authentic discipleship is this. Evidenced and encapsulated in love for one another. It shows up and it can be framed in this. Love each other, verse 12 and verse 17. And that love has been epitomized by Jesus who died for frail human beings, as verse 13 says. So I said it's kind of like a a sandwich. Uh, For you foodie types, it's like a triple-decker, all the goodness dripping off of it burger, all right, for you foodie people. On the edges, you have the same thing, verse 12 and 17. The meat of it is in the middle. 12 and 17 are the first point love like Jesus, 13 to 16, the middle of it is how Jesus loves. It's one thing to say love each other like Jesus loves. 
It's another thing to look at how he loves and love that way. So in the first part, love like Jesus will have two considerations. And in the second part, how Jesus loves will have three considerations. The first part is verse 12 and verse 17. And then there's a triple decker uh, sandwich coming at you in verses 13 to 16. First, Jesus' command, love like Jesus. Jesus' command, love like Jesus. You can see it there in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I've loved you. You can see it again in verse 17. This I command you that you love one another. This is a command that shows up in both verse 12 and 17. This is an order. This is required. This is not optional. Love one another, verse 17, qualified in verse 12, just as I have loved you. Again, this is our Lord's command. The word for love here in verse 12, it's used 10 times in this passage, not just today's text, but in the, in the broader passage. Not only is it used 10 times, it's used 10 times within a 10-verse span it's that familiar word, agape, that's the root word. Between verse 9 and verse 19, it shows up 10 times. Clearly, this is a big deal to Jesus. It is a major theme in his heart and in his mind. It's something that he feels is very vitally important to convey to his disciples. If Jesus says something once, that's enough. To say it 10 times, he clearly is wanting to stress this point as the master teacher. As we look more closely at those 10 uses from verses 9 to 19, we see him putting that word into two categories, which is why I said we have two points under number one, love like Jesus. The two categories that he puts the word love into from verses 9 to 19 are first, the love of God for his own, and second, the love of God's own for God's own. First, God's love for you. It's the category Jesus puts five of those ten uses in. The five other times he talks about God's love through you to those he loves. So he loves them, and he wants them to know he loves them by the way you love them. Those are the ways he uses that word. So first agapao, agape, five times referring to God's love for Christians. You can see those all in verses 9 and 10. We looked at it last week, but just for context and refresher and maybe reminder for those who weren't with us. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. There's three of them. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. So for today's emphasis, not to re-preach verse 9 to 11 from last week, for today's emphasis, I'm showing this to say that Jesus is laying the foundation in verses 9 to 11. That's God's love for His own. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. That's the solid ground that Jesus wants us to stand on when we obey the commands of this week's passage. Love one another. His love alone creates and shapes His people's reciprocal love for Him and our love for one another. To put it in Jesus' terms and in His metaphor, we are to abide in the love of Jesus. We are to Verse 10, you will abide in my love. We are to remain in his love. We are to say tethered to the realities of his love for us. And as we abide in the love of Jesus, verse 9 and 10, then that bedrock, that foundation becomes the playground of joy for us to love his people, to live in the love of God for us in Christ meaning to abide in the love of Jesus, empowers us 
to in turn love him back as Jesus did. He dwelt in the Father's love. He loved the Father back. It gave him joy in keeping the Father's commandments, just as I kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love, verse 10. Jesus is saying, I'm promising you the exact same pathway to the fullness of my joy in your life. Jesus is the most joyful, happy, if you will, person who's ever stepped foot on the planet, the most satisfied, fulfilled, the most glad human, yes, divine, but the most glad man, the God-man who's ever stepped foot on the planet, and it's because he lived underneath the waterfall of the awareness of the Father's love for him. And Jesus is promising us his own joy if we too will move our life underneath this avalanche, this waterfall, this Niagara Falls of God's intense agape for us. So that's the first of the five uses, God's love for his own. But building on that foundation of God's love for us, Jesus takes another step in today's passage. Not only are we commanded to abide in His love, verses 9 and 10, we're also commanded, verse 12 and 17, to love others with His love. Just as I have loved you is the way Jesus qualifies His command for us to love one another, verse 12. So that's the second consideration in part one. Love like Jesus, first, we have to know about God's love for us in Christ, and second, we're told here that God's loved ones have God's love for God's loved ones. It's the love of God coursing through our lives, yes, for us, but also for all whom He loves. You see it there in verse 12 and 17. Three of the uses of that agape, that love word, are, are right here in verse 12. Love one another. Uh, and 17, 12 and 17, love one another just as I've loved you. 17, this I command you that you love one another. Notice again, it's a command. It's a command. The range of meaning of this word command is, quote, an imperial decree, a divine order authorizing a specific action, a decree. It's coming from the king. He conquers your heart, not with weapons of warfare that obliterate you, but he comes and he conquers you with the cross love of his son. He melts your pride by causing your eyes to see that God humbled Himself. The second person of the Trinity, Christ, became a man. And when you're made to see that the Creator of the ages humbled Himself to walk among His created order, and not as a king, but as really a, a pauper, and to be ridiculed, and eventually spat upon, and mocked, and have the whiskers ripped from his face after grown men had beat him to a bloody pulp and lacerated his back with a cat of nine tails. And then he's put like a dangled piece of meat on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And he's totally scorned. He's stripped naked. He's constantly being mocked. And then you're made to see by the grace of God that this Jesus humbled himself to that extent in obedience to the commands of God to die for your sin and not his own, when our eyes are made to see him, we don't look at verses like 12 and 17 and squint and tilt our head and try to make it say something other than what it obviously says. I am sending you an imperial decree. He came and conquered your heart with His love. He could have eviscerated you. He could have excoriated you. He could have aimed all the missiles of His omnipotence at you. He could have dropped a nuclear bomb of His wrath on your head. 
And he came after you in humble love. He chased you down. He would not let you outrun him. All the trillions of times you scorned him, all the times you're indifferent to him, all the times that you thought you could do without him or knew better than him, all the times you spiritually puffed yourself up in pride and tried to put God in your debt, throwing his name in vain into your sentences to try to make yourself look good, or look good in others' eyes. He conquered your heart. And here's the imperial decree. He sends out the chariots and the cavalry. He has his war horses going out and riding on them is the symphony, not the archer. He doesn't come with blazing arrows of fire to pierce you. He comes with a symphony. He's got the brass instruments riding on the chariots and they're blowing a trumpet and hanging from the banner of their trumpet coming after you is, here's my decree. I love you. Now love others with that same love. This is a command. This is an order. This is coming from the king of the universe. He's not asking you if you like it. He's assuming that you love it. Do you love with the love of Jesus? There's no way around the standard that Jesus is laying down here in verses 12 and 17. We are to agape others just as he agaped us. John is in these two verses, the bread of the sandwich, if you will, 12 and 17, reiterating what he recorded two chapters earlier from the lips of the Lord Jesus. You guys are familiar with the 11th commandment. There are not 10. There are 11. Jesus engraved a new one over the top of all the other 10. A new commandment, John 13, 34, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. This is our King's command. The the measure of our love for each other has to have the right standard. How do you know if your cup is full? The measure of our love for others is to be measured by His love for us. John has been called the apostle of love. John, the writer of this gospel. Some refer to him that way because he's the beloved disciple. That's how he refers to himself. But also, he has basically three words in his vocabulary. In all five books that he wrote, he builds around those three words. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. Light, life, love. And John just writes about those three themes, especially in 1st John, in like a spiral staircase. You look up it and all you see is light, life, and love over and over and over, but most preeminent is love. In 1 John, he put it this way, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Almost finished with point one, and we'll get to the meat of the sandwich. You can summarize verse 12 and verse 17 like this. If you're a Christian, you will want to obey this command. You will want to. And all the commands of your Lord. Because as we've been saying around Grace Church for a long time, and I say in those wedding ceremonies and renewal of the vow uh, ceremony moments, to love each other best, you cannot love each other first. We've been saying it another way around Grace Church for a long time, and it goes something like this. Christians don't like to be told what to do. We love to be told what to do. And here, we're being told that our King, verse 9 to 11, loves us 
And now he's commanding us in verse 12 and following to love others with his love. Nothing brings a true believer greater joy, that's verse 11, than rejoicing the heart of our Redeemer King. We long to honor him with our lives, which depends on obedience to his commands. Isn't this a beautiful command? I demand you, I'm sending an an imperial decree to your doorstep, it's coming into your mailbox, it's addressed to you, love like I love. So what does obeying this command look like? Well, to find out, you got to look at the stuff in the sandwich. The brackets of the passage are pretty clear, love one another. The middle is where we find out what Jesus means. This is verse 13 to 16. It's our second and final point. Love like Jesus, but here we find his pattern, how he loves. Jesus' pattern, how Jesus loves his own. There are three parts to it. Self-giving, God-giving, and God-seeking. Those are the three layers of goodness between between the brackets. We have to keep in mind that all of these verses verse 13 to 16, are sandwiched between Jesus' command for his disciples to love one another. And I believe Jesus is using verse 13 to 16, as I'm trying to show, to say to us what love to neighbor looks like. He is to be our pattern. It is actually his love through us. We don't have the resources. We receive his love and we extend his love. I said there are three ways Jesus loves in this passage verses 13 to 16, self-giving, God-giving, and God-seeking. First, verse 13 and 14, unlimited self-giving for friends. You guys are familiar with this well-trodden, wonderful verse. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. There's another use of that word love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now take a look at verse 14. Imagine that I said it instead of Jesus just for a moment. I walked in here today and said, I'm a little short on friends. I got a little friend shortage going on, and I would like for some new ones to apply. And the application is uh, just one item long. If you'll obey everything I ever command you to do, we can be friends. That's verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. That defines the kind of friendship Jesus is talking about. And oh, is it a glorious friendship. You are not only slaves. That is true. You are also grafted into the family. (laughs) You become friends and even more than that, co-heirs. Verse 13 though, greater love is no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Coupled with 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Does this mean that Jesus laid down his life for us if we obey what he commands? No. No. Not in the sense that our obedience made Jesus then lay down his life for us. What Jesus is saying is that our obedience to his commandments, verse 14, is the evidence that we are those for whom he died. Walking in obedience to Jesus' commands by the power of the Holy Spirit in community with his loved ones is the fruit of abiding in Christ, verses 1 through 11. So when verse 13 says those familiar lines, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friend, he just told us to love like he loves. Well, let's look at his love through this verse, and then we'll look at our love through this verse. When were these words spoken? We know who said them. Jesus said them. When did he say them? It's Thursday night. It's pitch black outside. This is the last week of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be crucified on Friday morning. He knows what's coming. 
It's after dinner. Judas is gone. The 11 are with him. I take the end of verse 14 to mean they're walking through the city streets. And Jesus says these words, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. They didn't get it, but he got it. He was literally on his way. He was marching toward the cross. What would we do if we knew there was a warrant out for our arrest and public execution? Probably leave town. What does Jesus do? Fixes dinner for his friends and walks toward the executioners. The gospel of Jesus goes so far beyond verse 13. It doesn't eliminate it. That just doesn't include all of it. Because Christ did not lay down his life for those who loved him like friends. Did he? He laid down his life, Romans chapter 5, for those who were his enemies. For if while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone may dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Here it comes. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus says, what credit, is, what credit is it to you if you just love like lost people love? You just love like Gentiles? You got Gentile love? Congratulations. Go love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus does lay down his life for his friends, but he lays down his life to make us his friends. From the cross, literally less than 24 hours after he spoke this sentence, this same Savior King, breathing his last breath, says, and I quote, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In the gospel, Jesus lays down his life for his enemies to make us his friends. And once he's reconciled us to God, he reconciles us to one another too. And what he's saying here is we are to love each other the very way he loved us. Now, good news. There is a Messiah. You are not him. You don't have to go die physically for the everlasting love of God to be poured upon another human. You absolutely have to be willing to. to show that God's love for you, God's love for them, is more precious to you than your life. If you wanted to be here all afternoon, I could talk to you about Old and New Testament references to this. Let me give you one. I do not count my life in any aspect as dear to myself, only that I may finish the course the ministry that's been entrusted to me to, solemnly, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. If I die, I die. One job, receive God's love and give it to other people. Have you been made a partaker of God's gospel love? Has your heart melted at the foot of the cross as you believe that the sinless substitute, Jesus the King of glory, God in the flesh, died for your sins. Have you repented from your sin before God? Have you agreed with God about your hell-deserving sinfulness? That's why Jesus died. And have you given your life to that same Jesus who rose from the grave to prove that He can bring you safely to God forever? If so, you know what God's love is like. In John 15, Thursday night before the cross on Friday morning, Jesus is among His friends. He's speaking of friends' love for friends, his love through them for others whom he loves. This is what John is drawing out. It's the same thing that said he talks about light 
life and love. Listen to 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. Before we go to two and three of the parts of that middle, what is Jesus' love like? Let me just tap on the word friends. This is a shocking word in verse 13. It repeats again in the passage. It's actually another word like agape for love. It's rooted in a love word, phileo, friend. The reason I say it's a shocking word is because there's only two people in the Bible that are called God's friend, one explicitly Abraham, one implicitly Moses. Abraham in James is called the friend of God. Moses talked to God face to face like a man speaks with his friend. Outside of that, nobody's called God's friend. And here's God in the flesh staring at a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and former zealots and ragtag bunch of people that nobody in the Sanhedrin wanted to train to be disciples. And the God of the universe looks them square in the eyeballs and says, you're my friend. When we hear friend, we're not shocked. Well, of course he's my friend. Why wouldn't he be? Betraying the reality that you have no idea who he is if you think such a way. You see, we live in a generation that's totally inebriated. Everybody's walking around drunk with self-centered pride, stumbling through the streets of this world, up and down the hallways and corridors of their workplace, going in and out of cubicles and grocery stores, into their homes and alleyways and byways, totally inebriated with an inflated view of ourself And that is the consequence of having a terribly domesticated view of God. We've dumbed him down to our definitions. Instead of seeing God as this undefinable, standalone, holy other, but here is something truly shocking. The needless, self-sufficient creator of the universe is willing to let syllables come out of his mouth that form a word directed at you where he would say that you by his standard are his friend how do we know how do we know if Jesus would say you are his friend how do we know if he would Abraham you if you can say I have no idea why he would do it, but he laid his life down for me. You're his friend. You're his friend. This is how we're to love God's people, unlimited self-sacrifice to love others with the love of God, no matter the cost, because we ourselves have been loved by Jesus. You know, people say that healthy relationships are 50-50. Everybody does their half. The whole thing works. It's a lie from the pit of hell. They're 100 zero. Don't treat others like they treat you. Treat them the way you wish they would have treated you. You know what comes right after that in Jesus' statement? The golden rule? For this is the law and the prophets. I take that to mean that's how God treated you. God's been telling you for a long time through his book and then through his word incarnate, his son. He's treated you like you want to be treated, not like you treated him. You're free to love other people when you're drenched in the love of God for you in Christ. Verses 15 and 16 contain the latter two parts of the middle part of that delicious sandwich. Jesus has laid his life down for us, giving us a model for what love to others really looks like, that self-sacrifice. But I said, the other two parts are God-giving and God-seeking. That's verse 15 and then verse 16. I called verses 13 and 14 unlimited self-sacrifice for friends. I call verse 15 unlimited God-giving to friends. Here's where I get that. Verse 15 No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, 
but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. The word, the verse turns on the word for. Verse 15 is about being a prophet. Verse 16 is about being a priest. God-giving prophet, God-seeking priest. Verse 15 is about prophetic love. Verse 16 is about priestly love. The difference between a prophet and a priest in the Old Testament is this. A prophet speaks to men for God. A priest speaks to God for men. Verse 15 is prophetic. Verse 16 is priestly. The reason verse 15 is prophetic love because of the word, is because of the word for. I have called you friends for all things I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Do you know what kind of king would show? You know what kind of king, a parent, what kind of heir to the throne would show enemies the treasury of his father? A foolish king. You remember Hezekiah in the Old Testament? Hezekiah showed his enemies king of Babylon, 2 Kings 20, verse 17, all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, house of armor, everything that was found in his treasury. Quote, there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show to the king of Babylon. Later in the passage, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Guess what Babylon did? came and raided it and took it all. Guess what King Jesus is doing for you? Unlocking every vault and showing you everything his father has ever shown to him. That's prophetic love. And if you want to love like Jesus, here's your job description. Show other people God's love for them. I'm talking about in all your relationships with people you call friends, give them God. That's how Jesus loves people. You have to talk about him, or we could say it another way because that sounds too guilt-laden. You do talk about what you love. You do. You're a great evangelist, and so am I. We all talk about what we love, and Jesus is so consumed by the love of the Father for him that the knee-jerk natural reaction is to show his friends everything the Father has shown him. That's verse 15. And that'll be the same reaction for you. That's prophetic love. Leads to the third and final part of that delicious meal. Not only unlimited self-sacrifice, lay down your life. Not only unlimited God-giving, Give to your friends, God's friends, everything God has given to you. But third and finally, unlimited God-seeking. I get this priestly work in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. It's that last part of the verse, the so that whatever you ask part. That's prayer. That's priestly work. That's talking to God for men. But first, just the the challenging phrase, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This mysterious doctrine of divine election is radically true biblically. God is sovereign in everything. There are zero limits to God's sovereignty. That's not because of just what he does, sovereign election unto salvation. It's just because of who he is. He can't not be sovereign including in human salvation. He chooses based on his own providential prerogatives, not owing to any goodness in us, praise the Lord. Or as Spurgeon said, he must have chosen me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after. We don't go looking for God. He comes looking for you. He's chasing you down. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy will hunt me all the days of my life. We don't go looking for God. He comes looking for us. And Jesus wanted the friends to know that their self-sacrifice 
and their God-giving is all a byproduct of his choosing them. But his point in emphasizing sovereignty in their being chosen, yes, is to humble them, but it's for a purpose. Do you see the purpose in verse 16? You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. That's the purpose of their being chosen. And if you're chosen, that's your purpose too. Every commentary I consulted drew out the same inference and explanation of this purpose statement. Go and bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Remaining fruit. Always eternal fruit. Fruit that never goes away fruit. Jesus uses that word about remaining or abiding fruit, that that long-lasting. He uses that word a lot to talk about eternal things. I'm not going to quote you the references right now. Why would I refer to this verse as priestly love rather than prophetic love? If it's supposed to be going to get fruit that's going to last forever, and to get that fruit, you've got to go and you've got to bear it. Answer is because, as I said, the end of the verse, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. If you skim up to verse 7, you find something so similar, so precious. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you, verse 7. Verse 16, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. But in verse 16, whatever you ask in my name may be given to you. This magnificent promise of prayer, that's priestly work, is in the context of bearing fruit that, quote, remains. I believe Jesus is talking about evangelistic fruit. In some, we should pray for new conversions. What are you asking for? You're asking for what Jesus wants. What does Jesus want? He wants all the nations, ponte ta ethne, to be discipled. That's what he said when he got up from the dead. He told these same 11 men that great commission in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations. What should we pray for? God, make me an ambassador of you, my king. We should pray for new conversions and we should tell other people the gospel. Just like somebody prayed for your conversion and told you the gospel. The pillar commentary says the fruit in verse 16 in short is new converts. It goes on to say, by its very nature, abiding in Christ is a union, an intimacy, which by necessity of its own constitution seeks to bring others into its orb. Do you want lost people to be saved? Does this at times get you up at night and put you on your knees in the prayer closet? Does this on occasion propel you from the prayer closet? to a humble, loving pursuit of others in Christ's name, to be his ambassador, to beg men, 2 Corinthians 5, on behalf of God, behalf of God, be reconciled to Christ. Here's the priestly call. It's not going to happen without prayer. Some people say, well, if you believe God is sovereign in salvation, why do you pray? That's the most absurd question. You flip it the other way. Because I can't save anybody and I can't put it eloquently enough in my presentation of the gospel to guarantee anybody's salvation. I can't open any dead man's heart, any blind man's eyes. I can't cause an unconverted person to believe an impossible message that God came to earth, died for your sins, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, he's come back in. Only those who believe in him and give their life to him are going to an everlasting paradise. All others are going to an eternal hell. I can't make anybody believe that. The reason we pray is because God is sovereign in salvation. Only God can do the work. So as a priest, I go to the throne room and I'm asking in Jesus' name, oh God, would you give me remaining fruit? Just like I'm the remaining fruit of the person who told me the glorious gospel. I'm not the end of all your saving purposes. How self-centered would it be to flip the gospel on its head and say God was finished when he got to me? That's the height of self-centered pride. But no, I'm just one little stroke in this huge tapestry of what God is painting for his glory. And you don't even notice me. I'm just one little link in the chain of this gospel 
advance of the king of love, chasing down people's hearts and making them his own. So let's covenant together afresh. Because it may have been a long time, and some of us shudder to start getting concrete with quantification of how long. It may have been this whole calendar year. It's the first Sunday of December. Maybe you haven't told another human being the message of God's saving love in Christ, the gospel of Jesus this whole year. If you start backing up, maybe you can't think of an expression of commending Christ last year. So instead of going down the portals of yesteryear and living in the days of regret and letting the locusts just keep eating up our obedience to our Savior, let's covenant afresh right here, right now before our King to do two things. Bring the names of precious lost souls to Him in prayer. To ask God, would you save so-and-so? And would you save so-and-so? And as we're asking, and before we just turn around and walk away from the throne room and go on about our business, let's ask Him one other thing, and this is a second fresh covenant for us to make together before our Lord. Ask Him to fill us with gospel boldness and grace to commend the saving love of Jesus to others with our lips. There's two applications, and I'll leave you with these two little phrases. Receive Jesus' love, verses 9 to 11, and reciprocate Jesus' love. What would that look like? Self-sacrifice, God-giving, and God-seeking. That's how Jesus loves. Let's pray together. Lord, there may be some of those friends right here, right now, who don't know Jesus. So I pray that right here, you would save lost people who've never given their life to Christ. And I ask for all who are His friends, all who know His love, oh God, together we covenant. My voice, I trust many hearts. We covenant before You, and we ask You for grace and help to do this to bring our lost loved ones before your throne in prayer, asking you to save them and to fill us with gospel boldness to humbly, winsomely, with a broken heart, but with total faith in your saving power, commend Christ to them. I pray even over this Advent season, Lord, you would save those whose names are now in our mind and that you would use us to usher them across the threshold into a relationship with Jesus. Thank you for your love, Jesus. Indeed, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their enemy to make us friends. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name.